0: I want you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're walking through this sermon series, Uh, Beauty from the Broken, and there's nothing quite uh, that talks about uh, and kind of underscores this idea of Christmas season and the story of Bathsheba. Uh, That was a joke, and no one got it. It's early, Uh, but obviously we're kind of walking through kind of a strange, uh, really a strange set of events when you talk about leading up to the time of Christmas, but yet... There is such great truths that are found in Matthew chapter one, a story that tells the, the, the genealogy of Christ that takes us from Abraham all the way down, generation after generation after generation, till finally we arrive at the birth of Jesus Christ, who came to take away the sins of all mankind. And as we've talked about over these last few weeks, that there are five individuals contained within that genealogy that are unlike the others, and that's because they're five women. Now, in today's culture, like, that wouldn't be a weird thing. In today's culture, would be like, why is that unique? Well, back in that culture, it was unique to be talking, to mention the women in the midst of a genealogy, a story. In fact, if you go back and look in the Old Testament, you'll see, you know, genealogy after genealogy. You can go to, you know, all the different books there in the Old Testament. And oftentimes when you see the, you know, the begats, you'll never see women included in the begats. It's a very rare thing because the the men were, were obviously a patriarchal society. The men were, they were large and in charge. And women were not mentioned, but yet, in Matthew chapter 1, when it tells the story of how we got to the birth of Christ, five women mentioned. And the reason that we're spending our time in December talking about these five women, because we can learn great lessons of the faithfulness of God, the promise of God, the power of God, in the midst of today's culture, because of what these five women walked through. Of what these five women experienced in their journey, and the very reason that they're mentioned in that Matthew chapter one passage. And so today we're at the story of Bathsheba. And I think all of us kind of have an awareness. We know like a little bit about this story, Uh, but maybe today we're going to spend some time kind of talking about her more than him. I think most times when you hear sermons about David and Bathsheba, most of the stories, most of the sermons will lean more towards the David side. Well, today we're going to spend more time on the Bathsheba side. And so let's just start, if we could, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to begin with verse 1. And it says, In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around to the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. And so David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hethite? And David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her, and now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. The woman, verse 5, conceived and sent word to inform David, I'm pregnant. Now there's a couple of things in here that we'll just kind of touch on briefly before we move into the, uh, the, the story, the message that we can learn from the life of Bathsheba from this point forward. And, and the first thing is, obviously it says in verse one, that when the kings march out to war, and there it says in the rest of that verse, that David remained in Jerusalem. Now what that gives us here as a picture, is that this entire so this entire story started from David, the king of Israel, shirking his responsibility. He had every reason. He had every, the job he had as king was to go to war. And that's what it said. When, when kings go to war, they were all going to battle. They were all going to, to defend and to claim uh, property, to claim lands. And so, but yet David remained in Jerusalem. In other words, he sent others to do the work. Let that be a quick lesson to all of us that when you shrink back from your responsibility, whatever that responsibility is, when you are not fulfilling what it is that you are called to do, what you are tasked to do, nothing good can come from that situation. And that's exactly what we see here in the story of David in this moment with Bathsheba. Now before we jump into the rest of the passage here in, in 2 Samuel, and then we're going to jump over to 1 Kings in a few moments, uh, I want you to, if you've got a pen, I want you to get a pen out, or you can get your phone out, I want you to give you four words, and these four words are the words I want to give to you right up front of what we can learn from Bathsheba's story, and why it is so important that it, it is told within the Matthew one genealogy. We just heard this song that uh, Rachel and and Zach and Abby shared with us, Emmanuel, which, as you know, means God with us. And it's a perfect song, a perfect word to literally kind of walk us through and talk about what what Bathsheba experienced from this moment in the spring when the kings go out to war and David uh, came and, and actually uh, assaulted her, abused her, attacked her. Oftentimes, people will try to talk about this as an idea. Well, this was, you know, because David was a man after God's own heart. He was King David and all the great things about David. Let's just be clear. Uh, this was something where there was a clear abuse of power here. I mean, you think about this idea of David, the king of Israel the king that with a word could put anyone to death. And he sends for this woman, this woman to come to the palace. She did not have the opportunity. She did not have the privilege of saying no. If you said no to the king, nothing good can come from that either. And so it's clearly this was an abuse of power on David's part and uh and, and so that that statement of god with us is a is a picture that she experienced that she uh that god exhibited to her that god gave to her during this entire time so i want to give you these four words i want you to write them down because i want these four words to be words that you kind of uh, allow uh, yourself to to resonate with to to kind of lean into to kind of to see the faithfulness of god in the midst of your story Because I know that today there are a lot of people here walking through difficult stories. There are people here in the room today that while certainly maybe not in this situation that we've read with David and Bathsheba, you are still walking through a great trial in life. You heard that list that Matt shared a few moments ago and that list that he shared of people who were sick. There were a lot of people mentioned on that list that are very, very sick, very, very ill. Many of them, doctors have said, there is no hope. Ann Hale, they're just praying. I just got a text a few moments ago from Doug Ranlett, who, who heard from Joe and uh, from her husband, Joe Hale, and, and literally said they're trying to get all the family there because they don't think they have uh, even 24 hours left with his wife. They're trying to get people there. That is a great trial of people walking through. You heard the story of that little baby that's down in Roanoke Memorial, two months old. Christmas week, got RSV that so many babies have had, so many children have experienced. That child was so bad with RSV, RSV that they had to, to, to helicopter that child over to Roanoke. And as we sit here today, that little two-month-old baby is on a ventilator in the Roanoke Memorial Hospital, and they're praying for a miracle. Do you think that family is sitting back thinking, like, the this is a tribulation moment for them? Of course they are. And so that's why I want to give you these four words. These four words. The first one is resilience. Just write that word down, resilience. Here's the second word that I want to give you, restoration. Resilience, restoration. Third word, determination. The fourth word, discernment. So the four words, resilience, restoration, determination, and discernment. All four things that we learn from the life of Bathsheba, from the moment that we read about here in Second Samuel chapter 11, when, when David abused his power and brought her into the palace, and we know the rest of the story that, that immediately followed after she announced that she was going to have a child by David, you know the story that what David did with Uriah, and he wanted to get Uriah killed, and, and you know the whole story that took place there, and, and Uriah, in fact, did die on the battlefield by David's, not by his hand, but certainly by his plan. And so we know all of that, but from that moment all the way until the end of Bathsheba's life, these four words marked her entire journey. Resilience, restoration, determination, and discernment. Now, let's go into the passage and kind of get a picture of, let's kind of walk through like how exactly is it that we learn these four words? We see these four words, God in his faithfulness, God in his goodness, that he gives these four words To her and allows her to experience them in the days ahead. 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to begin with verse 14. We're going to read just two verses here in a moment, 14 and 15. And this is where we find the word resilience in the life of Bathsheba. Look what it says in chapter 12, verse 14. Nathan speaking to David, he says, Because you have treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. And then Nathan went home. The Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became deathly ill. Now, again, if you've got that pen out, you can underline, kind of circle the, the couple of statements in here. And the first one is you can circle the word Uriah's wife. We're going to come back to that in a moment because that's an important statement. But when you see the story that we hear, this is after uh, Bathsheba had announced to David that that she was pregnant after Bathsheba or after David had then sent for Uriah from the battlefront to come home. And, 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 and the, the, the plan that David concocted didn't come to pass. And so he sent Uriah back out to the, the fiercest part of the battle. And of course, he lost his life. And then Nathan comes to David. Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and he condemns David for what he's done. He goes with a word that came directly from God. He used, if you look in the first part of 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, he used a story, kind of a parable, to bring David to the point of recognition of how much he had messed up. And then David, after hearing the story, he said, you tell me who that man is. That man should die for what he's done. And then that famous statement that Nathan gave to David when he said, you are that man. And now David is sitting here under uh, you know, feeling badly for what he's done, he's he's under uh, conviction for the action that he has taken to kill Uriah and to take Bathsheba as his wife. And God's punishment for that was that that baby, that little boy that was born, was going to die. Now, now you know the story. After the baby was born, the baby became very, very ill, according to what Nathan said. And David fasted. He would not eat. Everyone was worried about him. They were afraid for him because he was in in mourning in such an amazing way. And because he was not healthy because of his fasting. And they were worried about David. And uh, uh, the servants did not even want to go in and tell David that the baby had died. But then David uh, kind of figured out that something was different. And so he asked the question, is the baby dead? And they said, yes, he is. David got up, and he got dressed, and he went and had a, had a meal. And then there in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, verse 23, we get a great statement that David gives to us, which has nothing to do with the story, but it is a great picture about the, the, the promise that God gives to us that, that babies who don't make it to the age of accountability will be in heaven. David said, uh, he can't come to me, but I will go to him. David gives us that statement to give us hope of those who've lost children who are very young that God promises that heaven uh, is in store. But now we see this story after the, the, the baby dies. We see the statement resilience because we know that God allowed Bathsheba to walk through this season. Now, we don't see it here in word, but we see it in the rest of the story. Because Bathsheba, after she had experienced this tragedy, after she had been attacked, after she'd gone through unimaginable pain as a result of losing both her her husband by death and now her child in death, can you imagine what she must have been feeling? Can you imagine what she must have been walking through? Now, you say that word resilience. In other words, she was able to make it through successfully and make it through in victory. You say, well, it doesn't say that in the passage, but it does say that in God's word. Because as you continue, as we're going to in a few moments, and as we read through the rest of where Bathsheba appears throughout Scripture, what we find quickly is this, is not only does she kind of rebound from this moment, but she rises in power. She rises in stature. She rises in her in her life and impacts and influences other people. And so that word resilience is so very important because there are people in this room today who are walking through the greatest trials and tragedies in life, where you're walking through whether it's sickness or financial problems or maybe like Bathsheba, you are walking through a moment where you have been assaulted, you have been abused, you have been attacked where someone has has betrayed their responsibility to you and you feel like that life is over, that there is nothing good that can come from the rest of my days. Like Like, where is God? Why has God abandoned me? I can't believe that I've gone through this situation. I can't believe people have turned their back on me and walked away. And you're walking through that season when you feel like there is nothing left. Let me just tell you that there is no situation that you will ever walk through that God will not give you everything that you need to walk through it in victory. Never lose sight of the fact that it is in the most difficult days, the darkest of days in your life, where the resilience that God gives to you will be revealed. And we see that in the life of Bathsheba, but far more important than her life. Man, let that be your story. Because all of us are going to walk through seasons like this. All of us are going to walk through moments where Man, where hearts are broken, all of us are going to walk through moments where we feel like, man, I cannot go on. Here's what I want to tell you. Yeah, you can. Absolutely, you can. Not only that you can, but you must. And we see that in the life of Bathsheba. You think about what she's gone through, the loss of a child, the loss of her husband. Of being ripped from her home and ripped from, from everything that she knew, ripped from her family. And now she's, she's being held captive by the king, in a sense, because now she's, she's in the palace. She becomes his wife. And you notice know, what I showed you a few moments ago uh, in that verse, I told you to circle that statement of Uriah's wife, that still she is declared as Uriah's wife. But here in a few moments, we'll see where, where things begin to change. And so let's talk about, let's just focus on that word resilience is important. Resilience is something that you should be thinking about and looking towards and looking for in the midst of difficult moments. Let's go to the second word, the word restoration. God always restores. Let me say that again. God always restores. Look what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 24 and 25. Now, after the baby has died, after we have seen the story of David fasting for the child, and the, uh, the baby has now died, and, and David gets back up and he gets dressed and he begins to eat, and, and, and he gives us that great statement in verse 23 of the promise of heaven uh, to young children who pass away. Look what it says next in verse 24. It says, Now, then David comforted his wife. So, in the very next verse, it went from being Uriah's wife to now his wife. That gives us a, a story how, about how her God took her from that family, that, that David took her from her family, but yet God restored to her family. David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and slept with her. She gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and he sent a message to the prophet Nathan, who named him Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now, obviously, what we see here is after the one baby died. Now, Bathsheba finds herself, she's expecting another child by David. David. And that baby is born. And David and Bathsheba named that child Solomon. But then God, the, the word of God says that he loves this child. And he sends Nathan to, to rename the child Jedediah. Now why are those two statements so important? Because remember last week we talked about how names mean something, right? That the names actually told a story. They actually gave a picture of something about the person's life. And when you go back to these two names that are given here in passage, uh, this passage, the name Solomon is kind of from the root word of shalom. Can somebody yell out to me what shalom means? Peace. And so the name that David and Bathsheba gave to this child is, uh, is Solomon, which literally means his restoration and his peace. So the very name that Bathsheba and David gave to their child is a picture of God has restored and God has brought peace. And so that's the statement that Bathsheba, after all that she had gone through, after everything that she had navigated now with this brand new child, and the only thing that is on their minds is the fact is that God has restored and God has brought peace, but it doesn't even stop there. Because then Nathan the prophet arrives knowing that he speaks for God, and Nathan walks in and he renames the child Jedediah. Now why is that statement so important? Because that word Jedediah means this, beloved of Yahweh. So, what God now has done is He's given Bathsheba another child, a child that reflects the restoration and the peace that comes from God, but that God Himself has declared, I love this child. And He names this child, God named this child Jedediah to say, He is beloved by me. Now, do you think that Bathsheba now is beginning to see that even though she felt At the moment that she had been wronged, which she had, that she had been abused, which she had, that she had lost so much, which she had. But yet now here, the God of the universe sent a message directly to her to say this. You have been restored and you will see peace. And this child is loved by your God. I don't know about you, but that has to bring some encouragement, don't you think? Don't you think that has to lift her spirits a little bit after all that she'd been through? After she had walked through and navigated this incredibly horrible story that she has walked through. And now the God of the universe is speaking directly to her. Just simply the wife of an infantryman who, who, who happened to live near the palace. And all of a sudden the God of the universe is sending his prophet to speak to her. And so we find that word restoration. Restoration. Warren Wiersbe says this, it was God who caused the conception to occur and who saw to it that the baby would have the genetic structure that he would need to accomplish God's will. Every time David and Bathsheba looked at Solomon, his very presence reminded them that God had forgiven their past and had guaranteed their plans for the future. So what's a lesson of restoration we can learn from Bathsheba here? Well, here's a statement. That there's no expiration date on God's promises. That there's no expiration date on the promise of God. Have you ever gone to your refrigerator maybe at home and, and you, know, you wanted to pull out the milk and you reach in and grab the milk. And then as you're pulling the milk out, all of a sudden you hear something that sounds like ice within that container. Anybody ever done that? And then you open it up and you start pouring it like it comes out in chunks. I mean, that's happened pretty much to everybody now, right? I mean, that, that, that's a situation. That's making, I remember years and years ago when Jonathan Jr. was sitting on the front row. He was, a, he was a lot younger. I don't know how old he was, but he pulled that milk out, and he poured it, the cup himself. He was very proud of himself. He poured the cup, and, and he drank that milk. And as he drank that milk, I think Sherry walked into room and recognized that there were chunks in the cup that he was drinking, and it didn't even bother him a bit. He finished it. We're such good parents, aren't we? <laughs> He turned out great though, I think. I mean I don't know. But but still, like like everybody hates the fact that you know milk, you buy it, you look at that date, you try to get the latest date because you know that pretty soon that milk's gonna be the place where it is no good. Well here's what we learned from this this story. There is absolutely no expiration date on the promise of God when God promises that he's going to stick by your side no matter what you're walking through God will when God promises that he will bring you in victory through the situation you're facing God will when God promises that he will restore God will and here's what we see God always restores the repentant heart and God always protects the damaged heart let me say that again because there are people in this room that need to hear both of those God always restores the repentant heart, and God always protects the damaged heart. In this story, we see that David, he repented of his sin. We read that, we we didn't read it, but you can read it there in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He repents of his sin. He repents of what he's done. He recognized what he has done is absolutely wrong before God. And we see that Bathsheba is damaged. She is hurt. She is broken. And in the situation that she's walking through, what we see is on David's side, God always restores the repentant. And on Bathsheba's side, God always protects the damaged. I think there are probably people in this room that you need to hear one of those. Regardless of which side of the story you're on, regardless of which side of the column you fall, Like you need to hear that story. God is always faithful. God's promises are absolute. That's the word Restoration. Let's go to the third word, determination. Now I want you to turn over with me to 1 Kings chapter 1. Now we've gone a little bit through the story now. And so obviously David has taken Bathsheba as his wife. And he's, he's had a child. He's actually had multiple children with Bathsheba now. Now he's old. He's later in life. He's getting to the place where he, he's almost done. His life is almost coming to an end in 1 Kings chapter 1. And this story that takes place before we get to the verse 11 that we're going to read in a moment, in a moment it tells the story about how David was, was close to, to sleeping with his fathers. So that's the biblical way of saying he's close to death. And as he's close to death, one of his sons, in fact, his fourth born son, Adonijah, Adonijah had claimed the throne. And Adonijah had actually taken much of the, uh, the king's power, much of the king's uh, horses and and his flocks, and he had brought them to himself. And it actually says in 1 Kings chapter 1 that he had exalted himself as king. He had made that declaration now that David's on his deathbed, and so I, I'm, I'm going to be the next king. I'm going to be the one that, that God exalts, that David exalts to sit on the throne. And so that's where we sit in the story. But let's read what happens in verse 11. In verse 11, Nathan comes to Bathsheba, and she says to him, Uh, have you not heard that Adonijah, son of Haggath, has become king? And our Lord David does not know it. Now, please come and let me advise you. Save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Go approach King David and say to him, my Lord, the king, did you not swear to your servant your son Solomon is to become king after me? And he is the one who is to sit on my throne. So why has Adonijah become king? Now, it's an interesting statement here. Because it's a direct um, refutation of what we read in the first part of this passage. Because in the second part, we just read in verses 11 through 13, Nathan says, listen, David doesn't even know what Adonijah's doing. But yet if you go back and read the first part of 1 Kings chapter 1, it tells us that David actually saw what Adonijah was doing. And it actually says that he did not come against him. He did not stop him. He looked at him and just kind of let him do whatever he wanted to do. And so here, Adonijah has exalted himself, elevated himself as king. And Nathan says, listen, Bathsheba, you need to go to your husband and you need to tell him that he promised that Solomon was going to be king. And it's important because it says this, save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Make no mistake. Had Adonijah remained, Solomon would have been killed and Bathsheba probably would have as well. Because they had to protect, Adonijah would have had to protect his his, uh, throne and his kingship. And so he says, go to the king and say, didn't you say that Solomon was supposed to be king? And so, let's keep reading. In verses 28 through 37, uh, we'll read that. Uh, Bathsheba goes to the king, and and she does exactly what Nathan tells her to do. Uh, She goes and she tells David, didn't your Uh, Didn't you say that your son Solomon would be king? And and didn't you say that he would be the one to sit on your throne? And then Nathan came in and, and confirmed that. Now look what it says in verse 28. And King David responded by saying, call in Bathsheba for me, talking to Nathan. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. And the king swore an oath and said, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every difficulty, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, your son Solomon is to become king after me. And he is the one who is to sit on my throne in my place. That is exactly what I will do this very day. Now. How do we see the statement of determination in the life of Bathsheba after all that she'd been through? Well, it's clear that what we see here is that she now had risen to a place of prominence so much so that the very prophet of God goes to her to then to go to the king. And Bathsheba goes to the king and she says, you said that Solomon was going to be king. You said that Solomon was going to be the one to sit on your throne. You said that he would be the one that would carry on your line. Now that's an important thing, and understand like how, how forceful of a statement that was for Bathsheba to make and determine she must have been. Solomon was not like the firstborn son. You go back and you look at all the stories of, of genealogies of kings through history, and it was always the firstborn son that stepped into uh, the king. We see that right now. Prince Charles is now King Charles. Why? Because he was the firstborn son of Queen Elizabeth. We now see that Prince William is in line, and whenever King Charles passes away, Prince William will then be elevated to king. Why? Because he's the firstborn son. Did you know that Solomon was actually the 10th born son of David? David had nine sons before Solomon showed up, and that David had a total of about 20 sons. You can read about it in 1 Chronicles chapter. Uh, three, you can read about all the sons of David, 20 different sons that are reflected there. And then it says, oh, and he also had a bunch more with a bunch of other slave women. So in other words, David had tons of sons and Solomon was 10th on the list. And yet Bathsheba had so much power and so much authority and she was walking into the king to say, wait a minute, your 10th born son is the one that should be king. I don't know about you, but that sounds like determination to me. For a woman like that to walk into the king who could, again, put her to death at a word, at an instant. And yet she says, no, 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 your 10th-born son, remember, you said that he was the one that was going to carry on your line. Now, what's the lesson that we can take away from that? Well, here's how we can take away. What we can take away from that is this. Is it no matter what you've been through, that when you are walking in the righteousness of God and walking with the the plan of God and walking in the will of God, that it doesn't matter how outrageous a statement you might have to make. It might not be a matter how outrageous, you know, a declaration that you must make before God, that God will always give you exactly what you need to say, what needs to be said, if you are willing to say it. In other words, it brings courage. Bathsheba had courage. After all that she'd been through, you would think this is a woman who's going to be broken. After all she'd experienced, you would think this is a woman who who has, has no voice. You would think after all that she'd been through, that she was a woman who felt like that she did not matter and had no value. And yet here she is declaring to the king of Israel, wait a minute, the wrong son is being made king and you need to change it now. And David says, you're right, I'll do it. That's a pretty good lesson for all of us. Because as we walk through the trials of life and the tribulations of life, the challenges that we experience, like isn't it great to know that God will give us the courage we need to do the right thing and to say the right thing, no matter what it might be, that God will actually allow us to stand in places of authority and make declarations for the, uh, for the will of God as long as we are faithful, as long as we are committed, and as long as we are carrying out what God has called us to. To do, let that be your story. So there's resilience, there's restoration, there's 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 determination. But then there's that fourth word, discernment. And basically, this is a word that could also you could you you could sub in the word for wisdom, like not knowledge, because knowledge you can get, you can go to school and get knowledge, but knowledge doesn't always equate to wisdom. Wisdom is a different thing. And so look what happens here as we go to First Kings chapter two. Now after David has declared that Solomon is going to be king, after he has declared that this is what's going to take place, now later Solomon has elevated now, he has become king. David has given him his charge. David has told Solomon, this is what you must do and this is how you must live. And now, after he's told Solomon, this is what it means to be the king, and this is how you must act as the king, now Solomon is king. And Adonijah, remember Adonijah, he's sitting off over here, and he concocts this plan. He comes up with this idea of how he can circumvent the power of Solomon, how he can uh, kind of sneak in and in away and try to, to undo what David, his father, had done. And so, look what it says in verse 13 of 1 Kings chapter 2. It says, now Adonijah, Adonijah, son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. And she asked, do you come peacefully? That's a good question, because obviously there could have been danger there. But he says, peacefully. And then he asked, may I talk with you? Go ahead, she answered. You know the kingship was mine. All Israel expected me to be king. But then the kingship was turned over to, uh, to my brother, for the Lord gave it to him. So now I have just one request of you. Don't turn me down. She said to him, go on. And he said, please speak to King Solomon since he won't turn you down and let him give me uh, Abishag, the Shunammite, as a wife. Very well, Bathsheba replied. And let me pause right there and understand who this woman was. He wants this woman, Abishag, as his wife. If you go back and read um, in David's, in the last part of his life, when he was coming in First Kings, the very last part of his life in, verse, in uh, chapter 1, uh, they actually went out and they found this woman, this woman to come in to basically be his nurse. And so she came in and she cared for David. She was his last concubine and she took care of him. The passage says that they never became husband and wife, but she did come in and she took care of David, the king of Israel. And so she was elevated to this position of caring for the king in his last days. And so he's saying, listen, let me have that woman to be my wife. Now, very well, Bathsheba replied, I'll speak to the king for you. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him about Adonijah. And the king stood up to greet her, bowed to her, sat down on his throne, and had a throne placed for the king's mother. Think about that. This is Bathsheba, the, the the Hittite's wife, the one who happened the Hittite's wife, who happened to be sitting over on a rooftop one time, you know, happened to be the infantryman's wife, and now here she is. And the king bows down to her and gives her a throne, sitting there in the throne room. But goes on to say, so she sat down at his right hand. And then she said, I have just one small request of you. Don't turn me down. Go ahead and ask, mother, the king replied, for I won't turn you down. So she said, let Abishag, the Shunammite, be given to your brother Adonijah as a wife. And King Solomon answered his mother, why are you requesting Abishag, the Shunammite, for Adonijah? Since he is my elder brother, you might as well ask the kingship for him, for the priest Abathar and for Joab, son of Zariah. And then King Solomon took an oath by the Lord, may God punish me and do so severely. If Adonijah has not made this request at the cost of his life. And now, as the Lord lives, the one who established me, seated me on the throne of my father David, and made me a dynasty as he had promised, I swear Adonijah will be put to death today. And then King Solomon dispatched Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, who struck down Adonijah and he died. Now what does this have to do with anything as it comes to discernment? Don't think for a moment that Bathsheba didn't see right through Adonijah's plan. Bathsheba was not some naive woman that people could take advantage of. She was a woman who had risen to power. You think about Solomon now, and he had all those wives, hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. And she's the queen mother, and she had risen to the place of of authority and power. She's the one that was sitting in the throne room with Solomon. She was the one who was giving advice to her son. Don't think for a moment that when Adonijah came to her and said, hey, all I want, just give me that woman. That she didn't see exactly what he was trying to do because he knew that if he could get King David's concubine, the one who cared for David, and become his wife, it would give him ability and stature and position that he could then challenge Solomon and challenge him to take over the throne. And so... Bathsheba did exactly what Adonijah asked him to do, but she didn't do it for the reasons to get him the wife. She did it so that she could protect what God had established as Solomon as king. And of course, we know Adonijah was killed. And we know that in the situation, Solomon's line was protected. And this line not only started all the way back on the rooftop in Jerusalem, it literally led all the way to the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. So, what are the lessons we can learn from these four words? Resilience, restoration, determination, discernment. Well, let me give you these three quick thoughts. Application for all of us here today. The first one is this. Never forget that today's tragedies can always lead to tomorrow's victories. Doesn't matter what you're walking through today. This is not the end of the story. The ending has not been written. As long as you are alive, God has a plan. And then, actually, that could be amended to say, even after you're dead, God has a plan. But that's a different story for a different day. God always has a plan to take your tragedies, to take your trials, to take your tribulations, and to turn them into the victories that only God can deliver. Never forget that today's tragedies can lead to tomorrow's victories. The second one, the harm that others cause you should not define your future. That's God's job. Let me say that again, because there are people in this room today that have been living in despair because of what someone has done to you. That someone has hurt you, maybe someone has abused you, assaulted you, and you feel like you were broken, and you feel like there's no hope, and you feel like there's nothing you can do. Let me make this statement again. The harm that others cause you should not define your future. That's God's job. The only job, the only person who can define what the future of your life looks like is the God of the universe. And God is not strapped by what someone else has done. God is not slowed down by what someone else has done. God is not subject to the the misdeeds and the sins of others. When other people cause you harm, when other people hurt you, that does not change God's plan and that does not change God's future at all for you. God is the author, the architect of every day of your life. So don't let the uh, the harm that others cause you Define your future. And then the last one. Stay forever focused on God's plans and God's promises for you. That means stay connected to God's word. Always stay in the midst of God's word, seen over and over and over again. No matter what today might look like, God has a plan. No matter how broken I feel, God has a plan. No matter how hurt I am, God has a plan. No matter what people have done to me, God always has a plan. No matter if I don't know where to turn and I don't know where to go, and even when I feel like I'm all alone, God always has a plan. And that's the story of Emmanuel, God with us. That's the story of what took place in the manger of Bethlehem that Jesus came born as that little baby to give to us the hope that we would need to let us recognize, go ahead and answer that, to let us recognize the hope and the promise and the future that only God could deliver, that no matter how bad life might be, God is there and God came down and he lived among us and today sitting at the right hand of the Father and here's what he's doing, here's what he's doing, He's praying for you. The Bible says he is ever making intercession for you. So how does Bathsheba, the story of Bathsheba, play into the story of Christmas? Oh, man, it is the absolute story of Christmas. It couldn't be more connected to Christmas. Because like Bathsheba, there's not a person in this room who's hearing my voice today who has not walked through this thing called life and you've felt Desolate, and you felt deserted, and you felt as if there's no hope. Because even if you think, Well, I really haven't felt that, and let me start, you should have felt that because every one of you have been, because every one of us were born with a sinful nature, and every one of us we've fallen short of God's glory, and every one of us deserve to be separated from God. But the story that is given to us in the story of Bathsheba is the story that was given to us in the birth of Jesus that Jesus came to give us away. To make a way for each and every one of us that no matter how bad we are or how bad today is, God always has a plan for deliverance. So those four words, resilience, restoration, determination, discernment, wisdom, that is what God always will give to you to deliver to you in the most desperate of times. And ultimately, that is the story of Christmas. Let's pray. God, thank you for teaching us today through your word that even in desperate times, we don't need to be desperate. Even in difficult times, we do not need to be without hope. That when it feels like everything has fallen apart, God, that you are still orchestrating every step. That God, your plans are higher, greater than anything we could imagine. And so God, today I pray for every person in this room. If there's someone here today who has never had the privilege of of recognizing and believing, understanding how much you love them, that Christ died for them, that he rose again, God, I pray that right now in this moment, that's the decision they will make. God, if there's someone here today who's walking through a, a season of desperation, of hurt, that someone has caused them harm, maybe through abuse or assault or or through pain and tragedy, maybe through sickness, through financial gain or loss. God, I pray that that in this moment, God, that you would let them see and recognize and understand. God, that you are always making a way, no matter what. That you're with them every single step. Emmanuel, God with us. God, we pray that you would give them the hope they need to make it through the day. And Father, for that, we give you the praise. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, in a moment, we're going to conclude our service. And as we do, as always, this altar is open. Our team is gathered here, men and women, who would love to talk with you with what you're going through. And let me be clear. I know that there are people, some people here today, who maybe like Bathsheba, you have been wronged by someone. That you have been hurt. That you maybe have been abused. That maybe there's brokenness in your journey and you don't know how to get out. You don't know how to to, to come out of that situation in victory. Maybe you feel as if that dark cloud that started, that that is hovering over you, is just your story, it's your narrative, and it's what you're going to have for the rest of your days. Here's what I want to declare over you today according to God's word. God always delivers. God does not expect or intend for you to walk in the black clouds of life. He expects you to rise above And he expects you and gives you everything that is needed to experience his joy and his peace and his comfort in the midst of anything. And I know that's true because Philippians chapter four, verse seven says this, that God promises to give us the peace that passes all understanding. As you've heard me say it a million times, that God promises to give us the peace that does not make sense. That's what God promises to give. And so today, maybe that's you, I encourage you in a few moments when we conclude our service, our team is here. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to just wrap our arms around you and encourage you and to pray over you and to pray with you that God is gonna give you exactly what you need for this moment and every moment to come. Maybe you wanna come and just kneel here and pray alone and just give whatever that trial is, give whatever that black cloud is over your life, to just give it to God and say, God, I'm taking you at your word. You are with me. Maybe you wanna come and meet Christ today. Our team would love to talk with you about who Christ is and what he's done. That hope that started in a manger in Bethlehem that that concluded when he ascended into heaven after he rose from the grave. And that today he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he is thinking about you. Maybe today what you need to do is, is meet that Christ. Our team would love to talk with you about who he is and what he's done. I encourage you to come down and just come up to one of our, our team members and say, listen, tell me about Jesus. Maybe you want to come and join our church family or maybe you want to come for baptism, whatever it is that God is speaking to you today, do not walk out of here taking with you the baggage, the black clouds, the pain, the hurt. Don't take it with you. Leave it at the altar of God. Say, God, it's yours, and I'm trusting you because God will always restore the repentant heart, and God will always protect the damaged soul. That's who God is, and that's what God will do. Father, today, we give you the praise. We give you glory. Thank you for what you have done already. Thank you for what you are yet to do. God, we believe you We trust you. We trust your word. We know you're with us. We know that you've promised to give us hope and peace and joy. God, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus came and died and rose again. And God, I pray for every person here, Lord, that we would walk out of here today with the assurance of knowing that Christ is King that he has saved us. And God, for that, we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The altar's open. I encourage you to come down and talk with one of our team members. We'll see you back next Sunday morning, 11 o'clock or Sunday afternoon, three o'clock. And we're gonna be talking about the fifth woman in the genealogy of Matthew chapter one, and that's Mary. God bless you, have a great week. Thank you for worshiping with us today here at Thomas Road. If you prayed to receive Christ, then we'd really like to hear from you. If you'd like to know more about what it means to be a Christ follower, then contact us today. You know, there's no better time than right now during this Christmas season to receive God's gift to you, and that is His Son, Jesus Christ. Our mission here at Thomas Road is to develop Christ followers who love God and love people. And if you'd like to join us in fulfilling that mission by giving to our ministry, then go to the link there on your screen and make a contribution to us. Help us help others as we extend the truth of God's love and his life-changing message. God bless you and Merry Christmas.